Matthew chapter 5. As we went into the Christmas season, we spent quite a bit of time going over Christmas, the hope of Christmas, and spent three or four, maybe five messages really pointing out uh, a lot of the truth found in the story of Christmas that's a little bit beneath the surface. We talked about Simeon, the eyewitness accounts that he was so brilliant, the the writer Luke of the Gospel of Luke, uh, in leaning into the necessity and the needs of the Jewish reader. Uh, He so knew what tradition was for that Jewish reader that things must be confirmed out of the mouth of more than one person. Two or three witnesses is what that custom was. And Luke did that so very well. And so much of that story brings us hope. And we had such a wonderful time in Christmas. We went over the prophecies of Christmas as it pertains to his birth and even a few of the prophecies pertaining to his ministry that were found in his birth. Uh, Just a wonderful time we had at Christmas. And now as we come out of Christmas into the new year, uh, my heart is to finish in the next few weeks this series on authentic Christianity Uh, This morning will be the 15th message in authentic Christianity. The last two messages we have looked at this theme called the blessed life. That comes from the word blessed that we see nine times here in Matthew 5. Uh, The first message of the blessed life, what we call blessed life part one, really was just a very quick 10,000 foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. We explored the magnitude of this sermon, how important it is. And really, if you take the Sermon on the Mount, there is nothing in history that can compare to what is found here that comes out of the mouth, the teaching, the preaching of our Lord and Savior. And even the greatest uh, religious, moral, philosophical statements, when they stand in the presence of the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, They have to cower and bow to the magnitude and the majesty of what Jesus Christ of Nazareth was teaching on this hill. Now, what's beautiful about this is that in our holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, we have access to what he preached. Uh, It's not for us to guess. We have here his words. Most of this chapter is in red. We have here the words of Jesus Now, let's dive back in just a little bit to the historical context of where we are in time as it relates to mankind. Uh, Historically speaking by now, as Jesus is teaching and preaching this, um, Greek philosophy has really taken over a lot of the world. And most of those philosophers have now come and they've gone and they've left the world just as morally bankrupt as they found it. Uh, They added more burden to the soul uh, that is damned without uh, Christ Jesus, the truth of the light of the world. And really these pagans had left many men, thousands of people groping for something to hold on to, something that was real. And whether that was reincarnation or many gods or whatever that uh, system was, it never brought anybody to hope and to the truth of God's word, of the teachings of Jesus. Now, 
We understand what's happening in time. We understand this is the adult ministry of Jesus Christ. Things have been jettisoned out in the Galilee region. As was prophesied, it's so important that we remember that the location matters. It's an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled, the fact that Jesus is starting in Galilee. Everything in your Bible, especially in the New Testament surrounding your Lord and Savior, is consequential. Nothing is an accident. Nothing is a whoops or a happenstance. It is all purposed. And most of those intricate little details that we most of the time just blow by at 100 miles an hour, if we'll dig deep, you can take that little intricate detail, find where it links to the Old Testament, and there again, we're talking about thousands of years of time that just continues to uplift the fact that your Bible is real, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And more of that is here. There are so many small, minute, intricate details here, but they are of great magnitude. And for us, the believers here, it's our uh, really our sustenance, what we need the most to dive into that. I don't just want to read the verse and move on. I want to read the verse, ask the Holy Spirit of God to show me what he would have for me there. And in this chapter of Matthew 5, there is a vast treasure, a vast wealth that will change your life. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. Now, that word blessed We underlined it in our Bibles nine times here in Matthew 5 between uh, verse 3 and verse 11. We took that word blessed apart. We spent an entire sermon on Sunday morning understanding the word blessed. That word in the Greek is makarios. And makarios means happy. It means satisfied from within. It also means that it is something that does not change in levels of satisfaction. In other words, it is a satisfaction that you as a human being apart from God cannot recreate. This is a happiness. This is a satisfaction that only God can give. So when we see the word blessed, we are to take in the fact that Jesus is saying happy, satisfied, content are the following people with each beatitude. So that Greek word makarios, it's really a familiar word. It's found nine times here, 50 other times in your New Testament, and it's an important word for you to know. So our best description of this word blessed, it points to a happy condition that no matter what's happening in life, that your happiness, your internal contentment is tied to the person of Jesus Christ who gives the satisfaction, who gives the happiness, who gives the contentment. I use my relationship with my wife, Miranda, as the example. I find great happiness in being married to Miranda. She is my helpmeet. She is the love of my life. I love my wife. And she obviously loves spending time with me. That is evident and obvious. But at the end of the day, all of my contentment, all of my happiness, my internal drive to be above the ebb and the flow of this life cannot be tied to my wife. My wife is a human being. She's flesh. I am a human being. I'm flesh. And there are times I can fail Miranda when it comes to the category of happiness and satisfaction. Believe it or not. I know that's hard to believe. But that's what this is talking about. Something that's above even the ebb and flow of your greatest love and passions of this life. And only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. It's a powerful word. Makario, say it with me. 
Makarios, not Makados, Pastor Allen, but Makarios. It's a very important word. Now, in the Blessed Life Part 2, we struck gold in the first beatitude. Uh, Matthew 5, 3 was that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Very quickly, at 100 miles an hour. We will have to go back and watch this in the archive later to get the full message. But what I want you to remember and take with you on this journey through the Beatitudes, what did that word poor really mean? What Jesus was talking about was poverty of spirit, a spiritual poverty. He was not saying blessed are the people who remain poor, don't want to work hard, who stay at home, who are late. That's not what Jesus was teaching. There are two types of principal poverty in the New Testament. The first is pens poor, P-E-N-S. Pens poor is a poverty that you can work yourself out of. Today we would translate that as paycheck to paycheck living. That is not the type of poverty that Jesus was speaking of, even spiritually. The word that Jesus used here was tokas. Say it with me, tokas. The word tokas is a poverty that you cannot work yourself out of. It's a poverty where you are completely, totally, absolutely dependent on the grace, the mercy, and the gifts of someone else. Jesus was saying, happy, satisfied are the beggars in spirit. That was a powerful place to start this message. And now we've come out of uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Makarios are the tokas. And now this first beatitude, we take it with us, understanding that that first beatitude had to do with what we are in our spirits when the Holy Spirit of God begins the work in our lives, that we realize how desperate we are for the person of Jesus Christ, the grace and the mercy that he bestows on people who reach out their hand. He will meet them there because they are beggars. They need his grace and his mercy. So this first beatitude has to do with what we are in our spirits. Now today we go into the second beatitude, okay? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if you're sitting on the hillside or you're one of the disciples that's there listening to this message, it may even seem odd to them at that time for Jesus Christ to start with poverty and mourning. This is supposed to be the dissertation of all time. The king has given his mandate to his people, and the mandate begins with poverty and mourning. But in this morning, in that poverty, we will find this morning even more greater understanding of who it is Jesus is, of what it is he did for you in your life when you got saved, and the hope that he brings to those who believe. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, God, we've given you this service already today. God, we've asked you, we've prayed, we have sought your face all week God, for what you would have today. And Lord, today for just a few minutes as we break the bread of life and we dive into the truth of this beautiful gospel, Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross. God, that my words would be what you want said. Father, that nothing would be said that you don't want said and that everything said would be exactly what needs to be preached. Now, Father, I pray for the people today. God, for the hearts and the minds that are listening, those that are here in the building, those that are watching on YouTube, 
those that are watching on Facebook or listening on a radio. God, I pray that this truth would be ever real for them. And Father, that the truth of your word would penetrate our hearts and change our lives forever. God, we don't want to leave the same way we came in this building this morning. God, every heart here, our desire, our prayer is for you to change us by the power of your word. Father, we ask for that. Now prepare hearts to hear. Bind distraction. And for just a few minutes, focus our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ in this powerful preaching, this powerful teaching from his mouth. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Now, we started with poor in spirit. And really, we need to say this out loud at the beginning. Thank God that's where we started. Thank God that that is the starting point. Uh, Understanding that humanity is destitute. We are unable to provide for ourselves in ourselves. We are in complete need of everything we need spiritually from God. In other words, Brother Earl, there's nothing inside Winston Parish that can suffice what he needs spiritually. I cannot be the Holy Spirit of God. I cannot be the salvation that I need. I can't work for it. I can't do anything for it. I have to cast myself at the grace and the mercy of God. Tokos poor, that I have to cast myself and ask God for the mercy. And the beautiful part of that story is he will give it freely to those who believe. But thank God, this is where it started. Poor in spirit, the poverty, the story, thank the Lord, does not end though with the corruption of man. We'll see this later on in this message. You'll see the great escape that's available to you. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon said this. I love C.H. Spurgeon. I use his quotes quite often. A ladder, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground. A ladder, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground. He went on to say, this gospel blessing reaches down to the very spot where the law leaves us stranded. Where the law stops and where the grace and the mercy of God begins, that is how far reaching and how low down the ladder of these beatitudes is reaching. It's a powerful, powerful depiction of where we are destitute and broken without God. So we will watch that ladder develop. Last week we were on the first rung of poverty. So here we go to the second beatitude and Jesus begins talking about Mourning, mourning. So quickly, there are three types of mourning. I won't spend much time on this. The first type of mourning is natural mourning. This is a mourning that's modeled by the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. He grieved, he sorrowed, he wept for not only his friend who had died, but for all of mankind. He comes off of the uh, Mount of Olives. He comes back into Jerusalem and he weeps over a city who has wholeheartedly rejected him. This is a natural mourning, the broken heart of human emotion. Many of you have been bereaved in the last two years. You've had to say goodbye to a mother, a father, a friend, a husband, a wife. That is a natural mourning, a natural grief. And even our Lord Jesus identified with us in that type of mourning. The second type of mourning is one that we need to be warned of this morning. That mourning is a grievance with God because of something he has not given. This is sinful mourning. 
This is something that your heart longs for, that you're pining for, even that maybe you're trying to manipulate a situation to get that uh, material item or the job, whatever it may be. There are many things you could put in there, but this is a sinful type of mourning. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But then he says this, but the sorrow of the world worketh death, a sinful mourning. There is no sin in natural mourning. There is no sin in natural mourning. That's part of the human experience and even our Lord and Savior showed us that. But this is where I desire to end up this morning and this message is the third type of mourning. It's spiritual mourning. Spiritual mourning. It's sorrow over our sin against God. The mourning for which Christ promises divine comfort is sorrowing for our sins. It's a godly sorrow. You say, Pastor, I have a hard time understanding exactly what that means. uh, That I would mourn over my sin. That I would grieve over my sin. That I would be sad over my sin. Jesus said... That if you would, you would be blessed. That you would be makario, satisfied, happy. Again, we find almost something kind of pressing up against each other. It seems to be that how can this even be possible? There is no mistake here. Jesus was saying exactly what he meant. Spiritual mourning. So what is spiritual mourning? What does that look like? What are the characteristics of godly spiritual mourning? There are three characteristics or three definitions this morning that we'll look at. And we'll look at the first quickly. Spiritual mourning begins with humility. Spiritual mourning begins with humility. The way it begins with humility is because it begins with the poverty of spirit of the previous verse. Think of that. Spiritual mourning follows naturally becoming poor in spirit. When you see that you do not have what it takes in your own self, when you see that you are truly, spiritually speaking, a beggar completely dependent on the person of Jesus Christ, you'll mourn over the sins that are yours. You'll not only mourn over the sins that are yours, but you will mourn over the sinful nature of the world around you. You will see the sins of the people that live in the city around us. And not only does it break God's heart, but it breaks God's laws. It breaks our hearts as the regenerated believers. Sin should bother us, ladies and gentlemen. Sin should cause us to blush for a lack of better terms. There should be something in your heart that's like a head-on collision with the Holy Spirit of God when your eyes behold something you know to be sinful or wrong before God. Sinful mourning begins with humility. I want you to see the Beatitudes this morning really as what I said, those rungs on a ladder, standing on that first rung of poverty in spirit, it will lead you to that second rung on the ladder, which is mourning that is blessed. You step on the first rung, you'll get to the second, and as we build out these messages on the Beatitudes, we'll build our ladder. But the point is, you cannot start here. You cannot start with mourning. What would you mourn? 
How would you know what to mourn? The point is you need to know that you are poor first so that you can understand what there is to mourn. You suddenly can't mourn over what used to bring you joy. I'm referring to sin. You can't mourn about what made you poor until you realize that in yourself, apart from Jesus Christ, you are in desperate poverty. This must begin exactly as Jesus Christ laid it out at the beginning with poverty of spirit. You need Jesus Christ in your life. And really when we think of sin, sin holds people hostage. It holds people to a hostage situation of temporary pleasure. That's why sin tempts us. There is pleasure in sin. But that pleasure is temporary. And it always comes with consequence. And when kept unchecked, sin will hold you hostage. So how can you learn to hate what you used to love and love what you used to hate? You have to start on the first rung of the ladder. You have to understand that you are a beggar. That you need desperately the person of Jesus Christ and not your own righteousness, not your own works, not your own ability, but you need to cast yourself at the sovereignty and the mercy and the power of this God. Are you with me this morning, church? So that doesn't sound like a very popular message to preach. Church, that's the point. And as the day draws closer that Jesus Christ comes back for the true church, the true bride, the itching ears will go and they will seek what they want to hear and they will find it. But for us, the believers, our hearts are tied directly to the truth of God's word. This isn't so say Winston. These are the words of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who is our Lord and Savior. We either bow and surrender to the truth of what this is or we harden our hearts to the truth because we find it inconvenient. Amen? Blessed are they that mourn. Spiritual mourning begins with humility. Secondly, spiritual mourning is an issue of the heart. Now, you may, this is so human, but you might not be able to tell the difference between spiritual mourning and natural mourning in another person. You're not going to be able to see the inside of someone's heart. You're not going to know their thought process You're not going to know what they're trying to manipulate. You have to take it for face value with what you see and what you hear. But there is someone you can be completely sure of the condition of their heart, and it's the person you see when you look in the mirror. And not only do you know the condition of your heart this morning, but sometimes when we allow things to pile up in our lives that do not belong, we begin to separate ourselves from what we know is right and from the relationship with the Father, and we begin to step back. And really, that is the tool that Satan uses first, isolation. That's his tool. But what you must understand this morning is not only are you able to assess your own heart, But God already knows your heart. And spiritual mourning at its core is absolutely a heart issue. It's an issue of the heart. Here's some context to what I'm saying. The Bible tells an incredible story, uh, historically documented, of a king named King Saul. He was a powerful ruler. He had a sick heart, though. He was really fractured in the way he lived. 
Saul was the first king of Israel, and he led his army into many battles. They're all recorded for us in our Old Testament. And Saul, King Saul, really began to live a lifestyle where the spoils of war, uh, they became his God in a sense. He'd keep him for, they would, he would keep the spoils of war for himself and for his men. And King Saul cheated. He deceived. He stole. And then he lied to cover it up. Then he gets caught. The prophet Samuel comes and there's this interaction where he gets called on the floor for his sin. First Samuel 15, 24, listen to the dialogue between these two men. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Oh, he sounds repentant. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It sounds nice. King Saul is saying, I'm sorry, I disobeyed. I'm sure that in his great wisdom that we have access to, that he was conniving in the way he said this. His body language would have been just right. His tears no doubt were big, his mouth gaping, and his reaction would have been, oh, he's really mourning. But you continue reading and the truth comes out. Verse 30 Then King Saul says, I have sinned, and then he adds a twist, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. King Saul wanted to sound sorry, he wanted to appear sorry, but the truth is that if King Saul had have not been caught, he would have continued willfully and happily in the sin. His mouth says sorry, but his heart is focused on damage control. How will people perceive me? Not concerned with the relationship between him and God and even his brother's his co-laborers. Spiritual mourning is the key, ladies and gentlemen. Stay with me here. Spiritual mourning is the key to tackling habitual sin. Spiritual mourning is the key to tackling habitual sin. Sin that keeps reoccurring in a person's life. See, Christians are called not to live that way. Christians do not live in a cycle of sinning, saying sorry, and repeating the process over and over and over, year after year. That is not what Jesus said a follower of Jesus is. That's not how our Bible describes that of a life of one who believes. This living in this cycle of continual sin as a wild animal going back to the mire of sin each and every time while claiming Christ is someone who does not know who Christ is, nor does Christ know who that person is. That is not the teachings of our Lord and Savior. Why do we know so much in the church of today of habitual sin? Why is it so prevalent now in the culture of even the church Because we know so little about spiritual mourning. The grace and the mercy of God is meant to lead us to repentance, not to a behavior that is arrogant, disrespectful, transgressing the limits of our relationship with God. King Saul is a person who is content to sin and assume the forgiveness, but does not mourn. He wants the benefits 
without being the believer. That's not walking in the path of mournful repentance. That's walking in the path of arrogant presumption. And God grants mercy for mourners. An old Scottish Baptist minister named Alexander McLaren quoted by saying this, If you have never been down on your knees before God, feeling what a wicked man or woman you are, I doubt hugely whether you will ever stand with a radiant face before God and praise Him through eternity for His mercy to you. You say, Pastor, that doesn't sound very pleasant, nor does it sound popular. It is the truth of God's Word. The salvation that God gives isn't some sort of cheap fire insurance policy. Salvation from God is not your get out of hell free card. Your salvation is by grace through faith. And the grace was costly. And the faith means something. This radical idea that you can simply sign a card Join the club, repeat the words, acknowledge the existence of a God continuing to live as a wild animal in sin. It's a damning lie. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Here's the verse. This is Romans 6, verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ. He is a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. A change, a regeneration from death unto life, from darkness unto light. The cataclysmic head-on collision with a rotten soul runs head-on into the grace and the mercy of a loving God. Does this mean after salvation that I will be perfect and that I will never sin? No, it does not. We are cursed with this flesh. It's who we are. We're saved, we're sanctified, but we are still waiting, Brother Paul, for glorification. The finished work when we get home to heaven where we'll be perfect in the image of Jesus Christ himself and sin no more. That's coming for us who believe. But while we're still here in this tabernacle of torment, we're imperfect. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
Now there is a comma and there is the rest of that verse. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. When I was a little boy, I lived on Clinton Avenue here in West Asheville. And I loved John Smoltz. Raise your hand if you know who John Smoltz is. The Atlanta Brave Rocket. I loved the Atlanta Braves baseball team. I loved everything about them. I loved Maddox. I loved Glavin. I loved Rocker. I loved them all. I loved Braves baseball. And I wanted to be John Smoltz. I wanted to throw a fastball at 97 miles an hour. I wanted a fitted hat and a big jersey. That's who I wanted to be. I had a little neighbor friend that I would ask kindly to be my catcher as long as I wanted to throw the ball, and he obliged And up on Clinton Avenue where we lived, my dad had an awesome little tackle shed work area. Little eight by eight with windows all in it. And one day while playing John Smoltz, I became John Rocker and I let that fastball go at 100 miles an hour above my catcher's head. And in through the window it went. And I broke my daddy's window. And the moment that that ball hit the glass, I knew what I had done. And Noah, I knew how hard my dad worked. And I knew what a pain it was going to be to find the glass to match that window. But I wouldn't even look at the hole. I acted like it didn't exist. I wouldn't even acknowledge it. I was so like King Saul. Even at six or seven years old, Jeremiah said, the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all. I put that on display perfectly at Clinton Avenue. In 1997, I became more concerned with being able to continue doing what I wanted to do, which was throw the baseball and enjoy my time my way. I became more concerned with that than I did the relationship with my father. I was more infatuated with my time, my comfortability, and doing what I wanted to do. And I kept throwing another ball. I kept doing what I wanted to do. And I didn't tell my dad. He had to find it later. Do you know what my reaction should have been? Noah, I should have gone directly to my dad and say, Dad, I was throwing the ball. It got over his head and I broke a window. I'm so sorry. I stopped playing as soon as it happened. I came straight to you. Now I'll do chores and I'll help pay it off. I want to buy the window. I'll be a part of that process. And Dad, listen to me. I'm not going to play near that shed anymore because when I go there, I get in trouble and I break something. I'm going to learn from this mistake that fractured our relationship and I'm going to change the way I operate. That should have been my reaction. And when a sinner saved by grace sins, this should be your reaction Run to your father. Tell him immediately, the moment you know you have broken the fellowship, that you've done something against him, that you say, God, I'm sorry I let you down. I'm disgusted with that. I don't want to be that. I'm going to change and do something different. That's the heart of a believer, and that is spiritual mourning. The moment I infract against God, the moment I do something against his word and my spirit is chastened and I know that I've done something to break his word and our promise together. The moment I've done that, I want to run to him 
with my petition and my plea. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not who I want to be. Thank you for the grace and the mercy. Thank you that you've already forgiven it. And what you're going for, ladies and gentlemen, is not that that sin would be forgiven. Once you're saved, your sins are forgiven. You're going back for your benefit so that you can have a clean conscience as a believer to go into the presence of God to pray and to believe. Blessed are they who mourn. Run to your father. Walk not in the spirit. Walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. In other words, it's all cheap words until he has your heart. He doesn't want your lip service. He doesn't want your religious action. He wants your heart. Blessed are they that mourn. Lastly, spiritual mourning is rooted in hope. If we were to leave it there, it would be a dark, grim thing. But we have to push forward and go to the best part. See, we've got to work through these. They can be painful sometimes, but at the end of this line is a beautiful bouquet of hope flowers. And there's one for each, every one of the believers. There's hope tied to this. And thirdly, spiritual mourning is rooted in hope. It's rooted in hope. Spiritual mourning is saturated with hope. You remember the story of Jesus and how one of his own men, Judas, he betrayed Jesus. And Judas, he grieved over his sin of betraying Jesus, but he did not have spiritual mourning. You say, how do you know? We know what Judas did to himself in the end. And Judas, in his grief, it led him to despair. But grief that leads to despair is the work of Satan, listen to me now, and not of the Holy Spirit. Grief that leads you to despair is the work of Satan and not of the Holy Spirit. Satan brings you to despair of self and leaves you broken, destitute, and alone right there in the despair. The Holy Spirit of God will bring you to the despair of yourself because you are tokos in spirit. But it will bring you to the hope every single time of the person of Jesus Christ. Spiritual mourning will always bring with it hope. In other words, it doesn't stay mourning. It transitions to hope. That's how you tell the difference between what the enemy is trying to do in your life, the voice that he's trying to whisper, and what the Holy Spirit of God is doing. The Holy Spirit of God will always push you to the person of Jesus and the hope that he brings, not the despair and the brokenness of this world. This verse ends with comfort, and this is where we end this morning. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Read that verse with me, please. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Read it again. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This verse ends with comfort. This second beatitude ends with comfort. But how are these people who are mourning to be comforted? How will they be comforted? In this world, what can comfort people? In light of the weight of who we are in light of God, what could possibly comfort us? Is it money? No. Is it material things, a bigger house, a social media following? No. 
That cannot bring you comfort. The question is not what can bring you comfort, but Brother Saeed, it's who can bring you comfort. The prophet Isaiah told you who would bring you comfort. Isaiah 53, verse number three. He is despised and rejected of men. Look here, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Those who mourn find a friend, find comfort and peace in the man of sorrows. Isaiah 61 verse 1 through 3 talks about the job, the mission the purpose of the Redeemer, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anoint, the Lord hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Here it is in verse number two, and the day of vengeance of our God There it is to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise and the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Christ accomplished his mission his gospel purpose in bringing comfort to those who mourn. The ultimate consolation, the ultimate comfort for your life is Jesus Christ. The Redeemer. The Holy Spirit comforts the person who is mourning by making what Christ paid for on the cross a possessive for those of us who believe I close with this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know ye not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Stay with me, church. Go to verse number 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. As such were some of you. I got saved, Miss Barbara, when I was 15 years old. But can I tell you something? I fit in perfectly with this catalog of sin. That's who I was. In verse 11, there's a word. And if you highlight, if you mark, if you underline in your Bible, I encourage you to highlight it, underline it, mark it. If you're using an iPad, highlight it and save it in your notes. If you're using a stone tablet, get your hammer and chisel out and get ready to hammer. Verse number 11. And such were some of you, like Pastor Winston. But, 
Hold on. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him you can be comforted. You can lay your head on the pillow tonight knowing full well what you were before Jesus, but still lay your head on that pillow, close your eyes, and have the comfort, the peace, and the joy that Jesus loved you and saved you right where you were. He justified you. He set you free. He called you a son. He called you a daughter. And now you can live in peace. The beatitude of mourning. Don't you love his word? My hope is not tied to this world. It's not tied to the stock market or what's on the front page of the New York Times. My hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, you've got to know in whom you have believed and where your hope is. This world's losing its mind. The enemy is coming for your children, but greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Walk in the spirit and go after him with everything you have in the comfort of who he is. We can be victorious. We do not have to leave this building sad, worried, and afraid. We can remember who we are. As Moses said to the children of Israel, remember you were slaves in Egypt, now you're free. Walk accordingly. Let's stand all over the building. Pianist is coming to help me. Really today there are two types of people that are here and who are watching online. It's very simple. Only two types. There are people here today, listen to me, no one moving, no one leaving, unless you're sick or have to go to work. This is a very, very serious time at the end of the service. If you've got to go to work, I want you to go. If you're sick and need to go to the restroom, please go. But this is so important. It's so vital. We're asking the Holy Spirit of God to examine our hearts in this moment. There could be a child next to you who the Holy Spirit's dealing with. As we enter into this season of prayer, there's two types of people here today. There are the people who are saved and born again on their way to heaven. And there are those who are not, who are lost and undone without Jesus. We don't need to overcomplicate it. We don't need to make it anything more than what it is. Two types of people here today. And if you're here today and you're not saved or you're not sure you're saved, if you have no peace and no assurity that if you were to die today or if the Lord was to come back for his bride, that you would be a part of that bride, then do not leave today without that secure in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're a believer, you have the assurance of your salvation, remember this. Once you are saved, you are always saved. Nothing can take you or separate you from the love of God. 
once that DNA connection to the family of God happens, you can't erase it. You can't change it. But what happens in this life of great distraction and sin and woe and doubt is things begin to happen, pile up in our lives that separate us from a healthy relationship with the Father. And what happens is sin begins to not turn our nose, blush our cheeks, or do something on the inside of our hearts. We've become insensitive. And if that's you today, I am asking you, I am pleading with you, don't leave the same way you came in the building today. There's too much at stake, church. Too many people in our city, in our county, who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and the next generation that's coming behind us who need some people to be real. Let's bow our heads, every head bowed, every eye closed. Is there someone here today that say, Pastor, I'm so thankful I came today. I, I don't know if I'm saved and I need someone to pray for me. Would you just quickly slip up your hand? No one's gonna come to you. No one's going to embarrass you. No one's going to do anything to harm you. We just want to pray for you. I'm not saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand all over the sanctuary? I'm not saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. How many Christians here today would say, Pastor, I know I'm saved. I know I'm on my way to heaven. But there are some things in my life which God showed me today require some attention, some mourning, and some comfort found in the person of Jesus. I have some things I need to change today. Would you raise your hand all over the building? Hands absolutely everywhere. Here's what I want you to do. If you just raise your hand, you're a Christian. There are things in your life you need to change. I want you to follow your hand and come straight to this altar. I want you to come pray. Pastors, I want you to join me Leadership team, I want you to join me in the altar. Uh, Deacons, would you come? There are many people that raise their hand. You may need to help them pray. But Christians, let's lead the way. Brother Doug's gonna sing a verse. We're gonna ask God to quiet our hearts, to still our hearts. If you raised your hand, there's some things in your life you need to change. Do not allow pride to come between you and getting things straight. Let's do business with God. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you're watching on the internet, you're part of our e-church. We really appreciate you tuning in. You know, keep that, keep that scripture in your head. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Basically, blessed are those that know, you know, sometimes I do have transgressions. Sometimes I do make mistakes. But God does something inside my heart that makes me grieve over that, that makes me want to come back to Him, get things right with me and, between me and my Father. And He's saying, you shall be comforted. If that's the way you're living your life. We hope the songs this morning encouraged you. I know the message stirred many hearts. And we thank you for your, your viewership, for your faithfulness in giving. We love you, E-Church, and we are very grateful to be able to worship together. We count you as a, as a, a true family member, and we're just grateful to be able to worship together. Will you do me a favor? Join me tonight at 5 o'clock. We're going to be right here uh, in the sanctuary at 5 o'clock for our evening worship service. Our kids will be worshiping, our teens will be worshiping, and then we'll have a Bible study right here in the main sanctuary. We'll see you this evening at 5 o'clock. If you need anything, you need uh, want to write us, email us. There will be a number getting ready to pop up on your screen, an email address, as well as our physical address. Feel free to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. We love you and thank you. We'll see you tonight at 5 o'clock.